0: That's one of the things about high performers, is that if you try to over-manage them or micromanage them, it's certainly in their area of expertise, like just, just don't. Ask them how they want to be managed. But if somebody understands the problem 10 times better than you do, you are not adding any value by trying to explain to them how to solve the problem. Welcome to the Business Ownership Podcast, brought to you by Awareness Strategies,
1: helping you navigate the waters between entrepreneurship and ownership. Hey there, peeps. This is Michelle Nedelec, and I'm super glad that you're here with us today because I am here with my most amazing guest, Stever. Stever, thank you so much for being here with us today.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. You are with the most amazing host, so (laughs) we have parody.
1: There you go. Thank you. So tell us who, who you are and a quick introduction to your business.
0: Who the heck am I? My name is Steva Robbins, and I am a two-time founding entrepreneur myself, and I've been with seven other startups as part of the initial team. I'm a graduate of MIT and of Harvard Business School, and I specialize in working with extremely top high performers and the companies that they work for to help them create a culture of not just being able to attract top talent, but also retain that top talent. So they want to stay and they want to be engaged and the company can get the most out of the, the high performers they have.
1: Nice. I love it. So how did you get into high performance as a thing?
0: Honestly, um, <laughs> I don't know. I realized. <laughs> well, you know, I, I I realized that most of my business had been oriented around just kind of generic businesses, and my social life was I really like hanging out with ambitious people who are very high performing, and you know, who really kind of you you toss them the ball, and boy, do they run with it. Depending upon which sport you're, I mean, in golf, the running with the ball thing, not so good. For other sports, (laughs) sure. And uh, one day it occurred to me with the help of two strategy consultants and 10 weeks worth of strategic planning (laughs) that uh, why not combine the things that I love to do? So I like working with high potential people. And frankly, I started off as one. And what I found was that most of the companies, if not all of the companies that I've worked for, are really geared... You know, employees fall on a bell curve because we're a population, and and most of our processes, most of our talent management, HR buzzwords. See, see, I can I can do buzzwords. Um, most of our talent management is really oriented around the peak of the bell curve. It's oriented around you know we have standard processes and ways of approaching people. The problem is when you talk about your really high potential people, the the top 0.1 percent or the top one percent of your company. By definition, these are not people who are at the peak of the bell curve. These are people who produce exceptional results because they're different. And that last piece seems to be the piece that people miss. You know, they certainly in high tech, which is where I do most of my work. It's widely recognized, oh, you know, super techies generally don't have great people skills, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, really? So why do you make the managers? <laughs> like <laughs> like right? you know, oh, we'll train them, you know, well, what if they don't want to be trained? right? If they're your top performers, they have the luxury of going places that suit them. And so i'm i i i'm I'm kind of i I'm number one, I was a super performer when I was an individual contributor. Uh, number two, I am LGBT. I'm actually the G part, I'm not the L part. And <laughs> I come from a really unusual background. So I'm used to working with people, I'm used to being the person who is the oddball out, the out-of-the-box thinker, the person who is way out there. And the people who have managed me frankly never did a very good job. So through this through the process of this strategic examination we looked at this and said, wait a minute. I've been in that position. I have successfully straddled the traditional business world as well as the high-performing world. I know how to talk to people. Just about everyone, except some of the extreme peak mainstream type type folks. Mm-hmm. I should be acting, uh, you know. I should be acting as a bridge here, and I should be bringing the things that I've learned to both the communities of companies that want to manage their high performers, and also to the high performers themselves, because. I was talking to someone, in fact, just today who is a young man. I'm not sure how much how much I can say, but let's just say that um, uh, he has already done things by the age of 25 that most people will never achieve in a lifetime. And one of the things that he is not aware of is that he's super, super, super smart. That part he knows. But the part that he's not aware of is if he goes into a company full of average people, he is going to be the youngest person in the room and the smartest person in the room. That is depending on the culture of the company. That is not a recipe for political success. That is not a recipe for making friends unless you have the right social skills, unless you know how to present ideas in a way that aren't threatening to other people, unless you know how to have, how to let other people have your ideas as they say. And those are the kinds of skills that I bring to the table. Nice. So let's
1: kind of, break this up into pieces because I know a lot of high performers that wouldn't define themselves as high performers. And I know a lot of good performers who would define themselves as high performers and like you do a little self-evaluation test here. So that's kind of, and then, and then there's the potential, right? So they may not have realized it, but when you look at them and you're like, dude, I could so like, you could rule the world. Right. Um, So let's kind of back up the bus a little bit. Other than being different and not fitting into the companies, which I can also relate to, just purely from a hey, I know how to have a conversation. Clearly, nobody else does. of which is fun. Um, and I've seen a lot of salespeople, so it's not just the tech side. I've seen that in tech salespeople getting promoted to management, and it's like, dude, you just took the best lone wolf you had and told him he's in charge of the pack, yeah. and it's like, eh, that's not going to work. So. Let, again, let's start with the breaking down of somebody and how did they know that they are high potential kind of individuals?
0: Sure. Well, I, I will tell you the, uh, I I did this with an audience at, at a very prestigious business school that shall remain nameless. Uh, <laughs> nice. We brought in a couple hundred of the MBAs and I was giving a presentation on leadership and I said, so how many this is one of the most prestigious MBA programs in the country. Uh, Presumably, everyone is here because you're great, amazing, incredible leaders, right? And everyone's nodding their head and going, yes, yes, we are. We are great, amazing, incredible leaders. And I said, well, what I want you to do is I want you to take out a piece of paper and I want you to look around and I want you to write down the name of the person in this room who you personally find inspirational, who has great ideas, who you would be proud to be their employee. And everyone's like, okay, and they stopped and they scribbled on the piece of paper. And I said, now, here's the test to find out if you're a leader or not. How many pieces of paper do you think your name is on? And I've only ever done this exercise once because it became apparent almost instantly that I was about to give a heart attack to 200 of the top MBAs in the country. And <laughs> okay. that, that, that was not what I had been hired to do. But that's essentially the exercise it's very easy in isolation for us to go, wow, I'm a high performer. But frankly, you don't know that. All you know is that you perform the way you perform. What you need is to be able to compare yourself to others and not compare yourself along the dimensions that you think are important. Right. You know, personally, I think I've just got the, you know, I've just got like the best eye color ever. Well, guess what? It turns out no one values eye color except me. So when you're doing that comparison you have to consider it from an outside point of view and you have to ask am i in fact a high performer and along what dimensions and says who you know can i actually back that up by comparing against maybe other people in in my company or by people who i've worked with before or by public figures you know or whatever and um if you find yourself falling short, you now have an aspiration, you have a role model, whoever it is you compared yourself against, and you know that you have to make progress. And if you really do think that you are coming out as a high performer, but that's not being recognized by your company, well, hopefully you just, in your mental experiment, you just came up with a set of criteria that you need to be able to highlight to your company to show why you're a high performer, right? You You can say, hey, my, you know, the comparable person that I am I am comparing myself to is Jane Q Engineer. And Jane Q Engineer, according to this article that was written about her, she generates 10 lines of debugged code a day. Well, if you take a look at the code that I've been generating, I've been doing 150 lines of debugged code a day. So if she's a high performer, I must be a really super high performer. But if you're not doing that comparison somewhere along the way, then what you're talking about is really um, your own opinion about yourself, and you get high marks for self-esteem but just because you have high self-esteem does not mean that you deserve it.
1: Absolutely. So now if we take somebody who is a high performer they they climb the corporate ladder super quickly, everybody knows it. It's like, okay, now I have overachieved. I am now at the point where I don't know how to manage these people. Steamer, help! (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Because I think too that real top performers when they understand, hey, I can sell anything to anybody. I can write code like none other. I can do I can do my job amazingly well. But I I don't know how to teach that to somebody else and or I don't know how to kind of develop in them. I do, however, have the ability to be able to see them or myself in them. And that can be super nebulous. It's like, I don't know, I just like them. And it's like, okay, that's good enough because you're you've got the thing. They've got the thing. That you're attracted to which usually means they've got that juice how do you bring that juice out of somebody else and and make them magnanimous when you don't really know how to tell them how to do what you did now when you, say how, do you, you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> when you say how do you do this are you talking about me specifically or are you talking about the generic you either one okay So, well, first of all, it turns out that that for whatever reason, it's probably genetic because my father was like this and my mother was like this, for whatever reason, I just have a natural inclination to want to help other people develop. One of my friends, years before I ever decided to do this as a profession, one of my friends said to me, I said, could you describe me in one sentence? And he just looked at me without missing a beat. He said, you're the guy who helps everyone reach their full potential. So so that's always been my personal inclination. So that's a non answer because if it's not someone's personal inclination, then they're not going to jump up and do it. Because it was mine, I've studied a lot about how to teach. I was the co-designer of one of the modules of the Harvard MBA program and I used that as an excuse to go out and learn everything the human race knows about adult education, about attitude change, about emotional behavior change, about intellectual and cognitive behavior change, all that stuff. However, someone who isn't kind of a super geeking out On how you develop other people first of all you have to ask the question is this someone who should be managing other people do they want to manage other people because and this by the way this is where the organization comes in because people tend to look at high performers as if they exist in isolation but they don't they exist within the bounds of an organization and one of the questions is the fit between the organization and the high performer so if the organization says the only way for a high performer to advance is to go into management that's actually a really that's a dumb career path. It's just dumb. If you have Rembrandt and Beethoven on your team, why do you want the managing people? You want Beethoven composing music, and you want Rembrandt painting. You don't want them to go off and be run learn how to run an efficient meeting. Screw that. Paint play music, we'll get somebody else to figure out how to run an efficient meeting. And then you guys don't even have to show up if you're busy with a composition or with a piece of art, unless it's absolutely necessary. So what that means is, right? ideally, either you have organizational systems that provide a career path for the people who are high performers, where they get to stay in their zone of excellence. And a lot of high-tech companies have this. A lot of high-tech companies actually will have a technical contributor path that will go up to a job title called fellow or senior fellow, where they will have the status and they will have the job title and they will have the salary of a senior person, but they still get to play in their sandbox of expertise. If you don't have that, then you need to either... Let Rembrandt paint and figure out some other solution to the management, but still give them an increase in salary and whatever else you can. Or you need to find out maybe Rembrandt really does want to be mentoring an entire studio full of apprentices. In that case, they will probably be motivated to learn how to do it well. Because the thing about high performers is they're high performers because they like to do stuff at a really high level of competence. So once they decide something is worth doing, they will put their mind to it they will latch on to that and become excellent at it which by the way that was one of the things that was really non-intuitive about about this right is people tend to think oh you know you have someone who's an expert in this field well it turns out a lot of the people who are experts in one area have multiple areas of expertise it's it's not so much that they're driven to be an amazing mathematician it's that they're driven to be amazing at whatever they do and if they're doing math they're an amazing mathematician, but on the side, you know, they just happened to play for XYZ orchestra and just got back from performing for the king. Um, which by the way, that's not a hypothetical. This was a I'm thinking of a person who I interviewed to for MIT admissions. I'm one of the one of their alumni admissions interviewers. And and there was this teenager who just kept saying, "Oh, I'm nothing out of the ordinary. I'm nothing out of the ordinary. You know, I, I just, I just won all these math awards, and I just do all of this STEM, science and technology stuff." Uh, and then we, were, you know, and then in the conversation, we kept saying, I kept saying things like, "Well, do you have any extracurriculars?" And they said, "Well, I guess, you know, I started this little choral group." And I was like, "Oh, that's nice." She's like, "Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, this was back." This was several years ago, so there was still a queen at the time. She said, you know, yeah, you know, we got to perform for the queen this year. That was kind of fun. And I was (laughs) like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) You, in in between winning all of these national awards for STEM subjects, you started a little choral group and performed for the queen? (laughs) Right. So, so. That's what I'm talking about.
1: These people, they just don't seem to recognize it. It's like, oh yeah, we're just having fun. I don't know.
0: Oh, Right. So <laughs> as soon as, as soon as they understand that, that the, that they want to mentor or help other people get better at what they do, all you need to do is point them at that and point them at some good resources <laughs> right. and they hopefully will take it and run with it. Now for that particular thing, that then begs the question of what are actually good resources. Uh, personally, I'm not super impressed with most of what's out there about human behavior and how to manage people. Um, it, you know, the, as i said at the beginning the thing that works for the the peak of the bell curve is not going to work for that person who's out there starting choral groups that are performing for royalty you know if you say hey guess what we're going to give you an m M&M and m for every time you successfully file your tps report yeah, it's you know, none enough with the <laughs> M um, and So, so that's yeah, you know, that's a whole nother level. You have to you have to point them at the human behavior, at some good human behavior stuff they, where they they can learn and incorporate into their mental models, and they will get good at it if they decide it's what they want to do. And if they decide it's not what they want to do, you need to give them something else to do, which where they can keep doing, keep in their zone of excellence, their zone of expertise.
1: I love it. So would you say that this pertains mostly to corporate or, you know, fortune 1000s or even fortune 10,000s, if you want to put it that way, no. or can the average kind of business go, you know what, I think there's some pretty epic people here and we could figure out how to hire them, entertain them and, uh, you know, just up level the sure. business somehow.
0: That's actually kind of a complicated question. Let me, I'm going to break it down into a couple yeah. of smaller ones. Yeah. One is, is this constrained to the Fortune 1000? For, no, not at all. There can be very small companies. There can be a company of 10 people that has one or two superstars, and those superstars basically carry the business in terms of getting work done. And most of my background is in entrepreneurial organizations. And I'll tell you, probably most of the, I'd have to sit down and make a list, but Probably most of the startups that I've worked for and with have one or two superstars who are genuinely the ones without whom the thing, whatever the thing is, just couldn't be done. Uh, So I think, in fact, that it's not limited to large companies by any stretch of the imagination. What is limited to large companies is the ability to create entire systems and programs to be able to help these people develop the maximum potential. If you're a 10-person startup, you may not have the luxury of saying, okay, this person This person has to both be the principal architect of the, uh, sorry, you may have to say this person is both going to be the principal architect of the product or the chief designer or the head marketer or the head salesperson. And because we don't have anyone else to do it, they're going to have to run the sales meetings or they're going to have to run the development meetings or whatever. Um, in that case, the thing to do is, as you grow, find out what's the best way of helping that person develop in the direction they want to go. Do they want to become the person who's in charge of the sales department or the product development department? Or do they want to be remain an individual contributor, but nevertheless have some degree of seniority, some degree of, ex, of extra compensation, et cetera, if they're really a key person? The other thing, and I actually can't state this enough. Most businesses don't need phenomenal high performers, and uh, I guess I'll, I'll tell a you know trade secret here. Most of the people who perform at that level require a very high degree of stimulation in order to stay engaged and entertained. Uh, if they don't get that high degree of stimulation, they will find it, and they will either find it by leaving. In which case, in which case, you just wasted a bunch of time and money taking on an employee who wasn't going to work out. Or they will find it by creating challenges for themselves, which means that some nice, simple, easy task that could have been done in 20 minutes, well, you know, now we've decided to do it in platinum. And you're like, what? (laughs) And you're like, I asked you to please just pour me a cup of coffee. Paper cups are right there. Well, I know paper cups are right there, but platinum really makes the coffee taste better. So I've gone ahead and requisitioned the tools that I will need to be able to mine platinum ore. And 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 you're sitting here going, wait wait, wait, wait a minute, oh, high-performing person, why don't you just use a paper cup? (laughs) And, And the answer is because they need to be given to be given challenges that are of a level that they're really going to be able to sink their teeth into. So if you're a local bookstore, you probably do not need a super high performer. So don't hire one. Hire good performers. Hire great performers even, but people whose idea of... of the way that they would just totally enjoy spending their time is to dig into 4,000 books, know what all of them are, have them at their fingertips and be able to make recommendations to people. And, you know, all the things that go into running a bookstore, none of which has to do with designing rocket boosters, which is (laughs) fine. You know, I keep using STEM examples. I don't mean to use STEM examples. I mean, you know, they can oh, be STEM, it. they can that's just my background. Um, they can be STEM, as you pointed out, they can be salespeople, they could be people who do finance, etc. But but basically
1: it could be the receptionist. I mean, I
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> I, once upon a time in a life prior, I took on a job as a receptionist just because I needed a nine to five job. It's like I need to start now, somebody will hire me now, I can do this. And of course, everybody looked at the resume and went, Why? And I said, I need nine to five. I'm like, okay, I get it. So I One company was smart enough to go hey if you have some extra time here's the head of marketing here's the head of this here's the head of that they may have some stuff for you you know feel free to do that on your at your will and it was awesome because every department head would give me stuff and i just crank it out because i was bored (laughs) and it was awesome it worked fabulously well
0: and it sounds like to do that because ego right well and it sounds like you were engaged and you you learned all the different things you would need to do. And by the way, once you've done that, now that becomes the foundation you can build on, right? That now goes on your resume. That now becomes talking points. That becomes awesome stories for you to tell, etc. Um, and as a high performer, and you know, I'm going to assume you are. I've never worked with you, but yeah, you high compared me to the as... people I was
1: with, <laughs> right? Everything uh, relative. <laughs> but but
0: but it's it's important to note that so. you don't have a hundred high performers and a hundred. Person organization, generally speaking, and if you do, you need to figure out how to manage them. One of the one of the things that I think is just brilliant, and apparently this was written into a book. I've never seen the book. I've just seen the slide deck. Is the Netflix culture document, and in the Netflix culture document, and just Google it. Just Google Netflix culture document, and you'll get a copy of the slides. And they pose the question. They say, "Look, you." how do you create a company of high performers? If that's what you really want is for everyone to be these amazing, incredible a players, how do you get a whole bunch of a players to play together? Because a players, for example, really don't like detailed, specific rules. I'm, I am, uh, let's see. I don't want to say anything that would give away the details. I have been asked, Oh, I'll use a metaphor. This is a metaphor. Um, Well, this is the truth but this is a metaphor for the real situation so i was a podcaster for 12 years and i had a podcast that was basically a fixture in the itunes top 10 business podcasts and it was as high as number three on itunes overall
1: and each one of the
0: episodes oh thank you i stepped down right as podcasting took off in 2020 uh uh each episode i would write it as an article and then i would do the voiceover talent for the article so i would read the article and that that gave me just a teensy-weedsy bit of writing experience, 587,000 words worth, to be precise. Uh, actually, more than that, because the episodes were an average of 1,100 words. So let's just say I have a little bit of writing experience, and somebody has asked me to host an episode of their podcast. And I said, okay, sure, happy to do it. They said, great, well, we're going to sit down and go over what you have to do to do that next Tuesday. and we met and instead of them saying look here's who the audience is here's the the broad structure of a show take it away they were like well you know we find that that the way that one structures a show is first you write down the big idea that you want to convey and then what you want to do is you want to write down three bullet points for each part of the big idea now once you've got the big idea you want to just practice saying that to yourself in the mirror over and over and over until you can say it naturally and I'm like, um do you know? Sure, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and again, that's one of the things about high performers is that if you try to over manage them or micromanage them, it, certainly in their area of expertise, like just, just don't. Ask them how they want to be managed. But if somebody understands the problem 10 times better than you do, you are not adding any value by trying to explain to them how to solve the problem. What you are adding value by is saying to them, why don't you take it away? If you need anything or if anything gets in your way, let me know and I will make sure that no one invites you to useless meetings. I will make sure that there are no administrative burdens put on you. I will make sure that the only thing that you need to think about is solving the wonderful, amazing, incredible problem that you are the only person at this company who can solve at the quality level that you can solve it. And that's what I would do.
1: Wow. So talk to me about who you love to serve and support, because I get there's the whole corporate and training and taking leadership and going, hey, here's how this goes down. And then there's working one on one with people that are just going, hey, Stever, I totally need help in this and everyone in between. So where where do you love to spend your time and all that kind of fun jazz?
0: Well, to me, those aren't super separable. Now, I have done I I Started my consulting career. Well, I first started doing doing management consulting, and then I went mainly into executive coaching. So I would call that one-on-one leadership development. Mm-hmm. And I'm shifting back in more of a consulting realm because what I've discovered is that that people, when people think about their own performance or the performance of other people, they tend to isolate that performance in their mind to just that person. So they say, "Hey, mm-hmm. um, let's use your example." Right? Michelle is an unbelievable, amazing, incredible top saleswoman. Now, th- what that is missing is the fact that Michelle is embedded in an organizational context. And the reason that Michelle can get out there and can spend her time closing multi million dollar deals is because when she needs a piece of information, it's at her fingertips. She doesn't know how. All she knows is that she mentioned it to someone yesterday and today there's a report on her desk giving her the competitive information she needs to make that multimillion dollar sale. And sometimes a person's performance is solely due to their own abilities, right? They're a high potential, high performer. They're the, they're the shiznit. However, they can be derailed or enabled by the organizational context. You can have an organization, for example, that requires you to fill out nine TPS reports in order to get the market research data that you need to be able to have that multi-million dollar sales meeting. And each TPS report requires six to seven hours worth of preparation time. So number one, it's going to hit your budget. And then number two, wow, we're really backed up right now. We'll get that to you sometime in late November of Late (laughs) November. Exactly. So the reason that I'm concentrating now on both the individuals and the organizations is that you can do an organizational diagnostic. You can take a look at an organization and and say, who are your processes optimized for? And do you have high performers? And is it working for them? And then frankly, is it important enough for you to either change your processes for everyone or to find ways of altering them just for the high performers? Because uh, I mean, their performance again is a function of both their own abilities and the organizational context that they're embedded in. Mm-hmm. And right, so that's Absolutely. more of a consulting role. So these days I'm thinking of what of, of what my company does as primarily consulting. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the changes that need to happen are at the organizational and the process level. Sometimes the changes that need to happen is you have a manager who needs to be trained how to deal with a high performer. How do you manage somebody who's way smarter than yourself and has no social skills? Because you may need to have them on your team. And if so, you want to have a relationship that works well with them. And then number three is finally the individual themselves because there are high performers. And now I am going to rely on an engineering stereotype. There's a lot of engineers who are not shall we say, the most delicately subtle <laughs> human communicators. What? Wasn't that diplomatic? Yeah, you know, scary. just occasionally they blurt things out that they really shouldn't have blurted out. So there's an element of being able to to train them and to coach them as well. But it's, um, uh, you know, for that, I'm actually in the middle of developing kind of categories of classes because there are... To explain to, say, an electrical engineer why it's important to take emotion into account in communication, you need to be able to do that in terms that they can understand and value. If you just say to an engineer, well, you know what, and I know this because I was an engineer and this is what happened with me, so I'm telling my own story right now as if it were someone else. When you say to some other engineer, and you say, well, it's really important to take people's emotions into account and to make sure that you're not, oh, I don't know, offending them as you talk to them. What the engineer might think, by engineer, I mean me, Mm -hmm. what the engineer might think is, it's not my responsibility to manage their emotions. If they can't deal with their emotions, that's their problem. They should just listen to my super brilliance. Because once they've heard my super brilliance, they will be so amazed that they'll just do what I say, even though they're upset and they feel insulted or whatever. Now, that's great in theory, but in practice, it doesn't work because as soon as you've offended somebody, they're not even going to care whether or not you're right. All they're going to care about is that, you know, you offended them. And again, by you, I mean me. So uh, what, what... what I you know what I learned was I learned that emotion is important in communication. The way that I explain this to somebody is as someone who's an engineer is in terms of radio waves. So you know how when you tune something in on a radio, like you you tune into ninety one point three FM. Well, ninety one point three is you can think of that as like a it's a channel, right? It's it's two tin cups with a string between it that you can talk over. Once you have that channel, once you have the 91.3 determined and you agree with the other person, these are the, these are the, we're going to use the 91.3 not point tin caps.
1: Not point 0.4, not point 0.3.5. Point
0: <laughs> right.
1: Sorry. Right. Then. 0.35. I stand corrected.
0: Exactly. <laughs> then you can talk over the tin cans and they can hear you at the other end. So. In engineering terms, we would call the tin cans the carrier wave. You don't have to worry about what that means. And the carrier wave has to be in place in order for the message to get across. Engineers totally understand that. And then I can say, well, guess what? Emotion is the carrier wave. Emotion is the tin cans with the string. And if somebody isn't in the right emotional state, the words stop at your tin can and they never hear them. Nice. So
1: love that that's, analogy.
0: Yeah. And so part of what I'm doing is is I'm is I'm actually designing curricula to help to help translate a lot of the concepts that are important in an organizational context into concepts that that work for people who are domain experts in different areas. You know, and um and I, I love why it. So
1: give us an example of one of your Cinderella stories, just so people can get an idea of the scope with which you work.
0: Oh yeah, so uh, I, I there was a gentleman who was, I was hired because he was creating a lot of friction in his company and I was asked to work with him. And we did a 360 degree assessment to understand how he was viewed by other people. And the 360 degree assessment included people at the senior levels of the company, people at the junior levels, people who were his peers, every single person said the same thing they said, this person is the smartest person at the company. They understand all of the issues of everything better than anyone else does. In meetings, they always have the right answer and they have it within seconds. And I will never, ever, ever do anything that they say because that person is such a jerk. I would rather have the company go under than to actually give them the satisfaction of of having their idea be accepted. So, I went back to the person. I said, hmm, here's a, it's kind of interesting here. Everyone, everyone thinks that you have the right answer and no one's willing to listen to it because of the way you're coming across. And what we did was remarkably simple. Uh, we just did a trial period. And we said for the next three weeks, you are not allowed to say more than three sentences in any one meeting. So you can't make the case For the point of view that you know is right but what you can do is you can nudge the conversation in that direction three times and he was like but how can i do that i'm used to talking all the time and i'm like well get yourself a muzzle if you have to (laughs) three sentences go and he did it and he came back three weeks later and said oh my gosh, this is amazing. People keep coming up into the hallway telling me how smart I am and how much they've enjoyed being in meetings with me. And it's weird because I'm only saying three things, but somehow everyone is doing the thing that I knew from the beginning would be right. Of course they are, because he's nodding at the right time. I mean, he's giving plenty of communication. He's just not doing it in a way that makes other people feel, feel diminished. Right. And that's the kind of thing, which to somebody who was lucky enough to be born with high social skills, that sort of thing is instinctive. Yeah. But to somebody who has spent their entire life being the smartest person in the room and being rewarded for it and recognized for it, that's the role they need to play in their own minds. And at some point when you're you know, a super oh. incredible domain expert, at some point you need to shift the way that uh, you need to understand that the criteria changes. And the things that got you to be the head of your sales team are not going to get you to be the chief marketing officer or the chief revenue officer of your company, because at some point it stops being about your skill at at chief revenue officering, and it starts becoming about your skill at doing the integration with the other people and the other functions and the company strategy. And that's literally a completely different skill set. So part of what I do, for example, is I help people develop. And again, this is assuming they want to, but mm-hmm. I help people develop that strategic frame of mind. Because believe me, if it's, if it's amazing to be what, a thousand line of code per week programmer, mm-hmm. imagine a thousand line per week programmer who really understands the code and the product and the technology at that level. But imagine them if they are also a great strategic thinker, and they understand the business strategy and they understand how to integrate all of the different pieces of the business together to be able to, to take that product to market. That's an unbeatable kind of person. And you know they have to want to be that. And the company has to be able to give them the developmental opportunities to be that and the specific skills. So They hire me.
1: I love it. So <laughs> I know our listeners are going to want more from you. How did they start their journey with you?
0: they went to my website steverrobins.com s t e v e r r o b b i n s.com and clicked on the contact the contact menu item in the i think it's in the upper right and sent me an email or find me on linkedin there's only one Steve Robbins and i'm him
1: and you actually respond yay
0: <laughs> i do he does. i do it, it isn't always instantaneous i get a lot of email but i i respond
1: oh, i love it i love it so i, I love to ask you what is your favorite part of your business for you what totally gets you jazzed
0: really my favorite part of the business is working with people who have big big dreams and want support in making them happen right which is and that's that that's what all of the consulting part of the business is about it's about how do you take the rembrandts and help make sure they become rembrandt instead of becoming some you know some hack halfway in between i was i was talking today with a young man who is just applying for PhD programs and he wants to change the nature of spaceflight and the human race. And I mean this this young man, this young man wants to enable a kind of technology that he's working on and wants to work on as his thesis that could make space travel far easier and safer and more energy efficient than it is today. You know, and listening to him talk about it he's like, he's like, I'm going to do it. And I'm like, you go. And you know what? There will be lots of, there will be lots of obstacles on this way. And some of them are going to be that he's going to need to be able to develop the kinds of skills that will enable him to get the attention of people with money, to get the attention of the people who would hire him or invest in him, or otherwise help enable him to be able to do what he does. But that's the part that jazzes me is sitting down with somebody who wants to change the nature of spaceflight and helping them understand what it will take to do that, and then do what I can to enable it to happen. And if that means restructuring the organization around them, well, so be it. Right? Exactly. <laughs> <That's laughs> <that, so> awesome. <laughs> if, if I have to change the world to make it possible for other people to change the world, well, gosh darn it, I'll just have to start today. <laughs>
1: There you go, Stevie. You have been phenomenal and amazing. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. I know how valuable it is. Any last words for our peeps?
0: You know there is, there is, a fine line between idealism and cynicism, and idealism is believing that the world can be a better place than it is, and cynicism is being upset because it isn't. And if you ever feel like the things that you want to achieve in life and whatever your own variety of high performance is whether it has anything to do with business or or not or if it's just you know whatever be, you know being a good parent i mean who knows what your particular particular brand is if you find yourself feeling cynicism celebrate that because it means you have a picture of a better future and you have a picture of how things could be amazing and incredible and get that get back to that picture and go do what you can to make it happen. And you know what? If you never make it happen, at least you will have tried. And that's way better than not.
1: Love it. Thank you. Peeps, this is Michelle Nedelec. Thank you for being here with us today. Be sure to subscribe to the show and join our Facebook group, Business Ownership Secrets to Scaling. We love connecting with you and helping you grow.
0: Are you running a business over seven figures but still struggling with technology headaches? Pay attention, you do not want to miss this offer. This podcast episode is brought to you by Awareness Strategies, who is offering a custom-built digital adoption roadmap for anyone running a business over seven figures who's wanting to grow their business in the next five years and it's not just a roadmap. They offer full implementation as well. If that scares out of you, check out awarenessstrategies.com forward slash roadmap for more details today. The links in the show's notes. Don't regret not doing this. Do it now. That's awarenessstrategies.com slash roadmap.